Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in most of the word, salvage means to rescue. But in Philippine English, it also means to apprehend and execute without trial. In the six years that Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte led the country, salvages of people suspected of dealing or using drugs made the streets run red, in the words of journalist Patricia Evangelista, whose job it became to cover the murders for the news site Rappler. Her account of the victims, and of a nation willing to elect a man who explicitly called for their deaths, is chronicled in her new book titled, Some People Need Killing. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Some People Need Killing. It's the title of journalist Patricia Evangelista's new memoir documenting the reign of terror of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte. During his six years in office, thousands of people, 30,000 by some estimates, were victims of extrajudicial killings in the name of Duterte's so-called war on drugs. We have seen our country devastated by drugs. And it has not only affected Millions, but a lot of them are no longer viable as human beings. Duterte made no attempt to hide his desire to kill drug addicts. He ran for president on that platform and won by a landslide in 2016. Evan book is not only an account of a harrowing period for the Philippines, it's also a cautionary tale for the U.S. Patricia Evan welcome to Forum. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here and for, for reporting this, for documenting this. It wasn't Duterte who said the title of your book, Some People Need Killing. Who did you hear that from? In 2018, I was investigating a story that police were outsourcing murder to vigilantes. And across six months, I was interviewing vigilantes in places across the city I can't name. But one of them, I'll call him Simon, it's not his real name. He said he was a religious man 
He said he believed he was a good man and that every drug addict that he destroyed, that he killed, would be protection for the future of his children. He said, uh, he said killing was like uh, being addicted to drugs. First you're afraid and then you're okay. And I asked him how he squared being a good man with killing. And he said, Mom, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not all bad. It's just some people need killing. And then, when I was asking him about all the dead, he said, look, I don't have a lot of time. I have to leave at 7 p.m. because I have a job. It meant that when he left the room, when I was speaking to him, he was going to kill. There's so much in what you describe, one, that these murders were carried out by by citizens. They were essentially emboldened to do this. They felt like they were taking Duterte's words as their own and that they would not be punished. Is that right? What was phenomenal about Rodrigo Duterte was that he was able to tell a powerful story. He took every fear and every grievance fueled by decades of failed expectations. And then he gave it a name. He called it the scourge of illegal drugs. He said if he won, the fish would feed fat on the corpses of criminals. He said that if your neighbor's child is an addict, kill him yourself. It will be a kindness to his parents. He said he would kill drug dealers, and when he won, he did. So on the morning after 32 men were killed by police in a single province within 24 hours, the president sauntered up to a podium and he said it was beautiful. He said more should die. And what was phenomenal about Duterte was that he, he made himself every man. So every man could be Rodrigo Duterte if he wanted. He said, I'm an ordinary killer. He said, I am one of you. He said, I'm no one special. So in the hands of any other man, maybe even another president, the story might have stayed the story. But this was Rodrigo Duterte, the punisher from the South, the mayor who under his watch reportedly, hundreds were slaughtered by death squads he had organized himself. So. I cannot speak for every death committed in the hands of unknown hitmen because I have only spoken to a small fraction of them. But I can tell you that when they spoke to me, they thought they, thought they were carrying out a proper war, that it was important, it was necessary, and they were doing it for the future of the country. 16 million people voted for Rodrigo Duterte in 2016. And you talk a little bit about how he was a longtime mayor. How, how did he come to power? How did he come to, to, to basically inspire so many to support him? Well, in the mythology of Rodrigo Duterte, Duterte had your back. And he said all the troubles would end here, today. He was a man, as he framed it, who said what he meant and meant what he said, who would give you a warning and then count one, two, three. That was the legend of Duterte. And he ran on a platform of death, but he also won because of an excess of hope. People wanted something different. 
And after years of sacrifice, of brutality, of, of hunger and poverty, Duterte said that it would change because there was an enemy that he would slay, lives would be better after that. So people who voted for Duterte didn't just vote for him because he would kill. It was far more nuanced than that. Every person I spoke to who voted for Rodrigo Duterte voted for many reasons. Some of them because he was different. Some of them thought that he was only making promises like any other politician, that he wouldn't slay people in the aftermath, but that he was powerful, that he would change things. And other people voted for him because for them he was Jesus, he was their father, he was the Messiah, he was a hero, he was many things. And the language on the ground was that, wasn't that we will vote for Duterte or we support Duterte. It was we are Duterte. Huh. Who were the victims? Who were the people that Duterte wanted to kill? Who was he describing under this scourge of illegal drugs that needed to be targeted? He was speaking about drug dealers, drug lords, and drug users. Now, when he described drug users, he would describe them as paranoid, hallucinatory, people who would be willing to rape their mothers, butcher their fathers, and so bestial and bizarre that they would rape a goat if they couldn't find anyone else to rape. These people, he said, were no longer human. Mm -hmm. And because they weren't, we had a right to destroy them. But even if these were the enemies that he named, it doesn't mean that these were the enemies he killed. I, I, think, I think the best way I can explain it is, is to tell a story. Um, there was a young girl. Her name, was, uh, her name is Lady Love. When I spoke to her, she was 11 years old, small, for her age, all skinny brown legs and big dark eyes. Now, she was born Lady Love, but everyone called her Love Love, everyone except her father, who just called her Love. Then one night, two men burst into the second floor of the shanty that she shared with her mother and her father and her many little siblings. One of them stood over Love Love's father, mm. and he said, positive. By positive, he meant that Love Love's father was on the watch list for illegal drug users and dealers. And Love Love's father tried to sit up, but there was a baby on his chest, so he fell back down again. And then he turned his head, and he said, Love, just before the bullet cracked across his temple. <sighs> and Love Love's mother wept, and she fell to her knees, and she tried to say that she was clean, that she wasn't using drugs anymore. But it was Love Love who shoved herself between the gunman and her mother. And it was Love Love who demanded that they shoot her instead of her mother. So the gunman left, but they weren't gone for long. When they returned, they stood in front of Love Love's mother. And one of them raised his gun. And then he said... Duterte kami. We are Duterte. Then he emptied the magazine, and Love Love's mother died on her knees. I, it is such an incredibly shocking 
and terrible story. And as you say, it really does help us understand the scope of the victims. You you say it could be a teenager who smoked a joint at a birthday party. It could yes. be anyone who used illegal drugs once in a 13-month period that mm-hmm. were fair game or who were on this watch list. The numbers of the dead, they shift a lot. We hear the Philippine National Police say the number of of dead under Duterte's reign was 8,000. What do you say? What do you say is the more accurate number? The current number... <laughs> The current number offered up by the Philippine National Police, by the Philippine government, at least during the period that Rodrigo Duterte was president, was a little more than 6,000. It does not include all the people who were killed by unknown hitmen. It does not include the people killed by vigilantes or all the other people who were killed um, in a manner we are uncertain of because they are body dumps across the country. But some of them were left with signs beside them. They say drug dealer. They say drug pusher. Uh, Sometimes it's thief or criminal. I cannot give you a number. My thinking is the number reduces the deaths, whether it is 6,000 or 30,000. Sometimes the government describes it. Its spokespeople describe it as, uh, well, only 26 died or only 100 died. I think when you append only to anything in comparison to a large number, it diminishes the impact of the single death that shouldn't have happened. Love Love's father and mother shouldn't have died. Many people shouldn't have died. So for me, I I can't with any certainty tell you how many have died. Only that many lives have changed and they have rippled across families and communities across the country. We have a cut here of former President Rodrigo Duterte in 2016, right after his election, the day that you say so many of the killings began. Here he is giving a speech at an event for police officers. But if the resistance is violent, thereby placing your life in jeopardy, shoot and shoot him dead. Can I be more clearer than that? We're talking with journalist Patricia Evangelista about the killings that took place in the Philippines under former President Rodrigo Duterte under his so-called war on drugs. Duterte's term ended in 2022. Evangelista's new book is called Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country. And we'll have more with her and with you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
In the six years that Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte led the country, murders of people suspected of dealing or just using drugs are estimated by human rights groups to be in the 30,000s. Journalist Patricia Evangelista's job was to cover the often nightly killings. Her account of the victims and of the 16 million people willing to vote for a man who explicitly called for their deaths is documented in her new book called Some People Need Killing, a Memoir of Murder in My Country. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your reactions or questions to what you've been hearing? Do you hear any parallels with the U.S.? Do you have any connections to the Philippines? Do you remember Duterte's presidency and were affected by it? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, Patricia, you talk about corpses every night. Sometimes at the height of the killings, they would be hourly. How would you report these stories? I am a narrative, long-form investigative reporter, so I'm not a beat reporter, so it wasn't just a function of naming the dead and counting the dead. I was part of the night shift. It's a, it's a group of journalists, photojournalists, reporters from across Metro Manila, and we came from different news agencies, and it was a it was a phenomenal community, and I'm grateful to have been part of it. We would go crime scene to crime scene, but there were many, many crime scenes. Some nights there were four, mm -hmm. some nights there were 13, and under no circumstances was I able to go to every single one. But at the height of the killings, that was between June 2016 to January 2017, where the velocity was so high. Um, I came up with my own methodology because it's not normal to see corpses on a daily basis. So you have to figure out how to cover. I've been a journalist for 15 years, but the last, the last few years were very different. So what I did was uh, my methodology was I asked the same questions every night. Was it a salvaging? Was it a drive-by? Was it a body dump? Was it a by-bust? Was the killer a cop or a vigilante? How many? What time? Who called it in? Was there a sign by the body? Were the hands bound? Was the head wrapped in tape? Was the body stuffed into a bag? Was there a sign beside the body? So then you go through a checklist. You confirm the street corner. You find the investigating officer. You sidle up to the bystanders and ask if they know the dead man's name. But what was different during the drug war was I learned how to stand still and listen for the screaming because that's when you know where the family is. So you find the family in the crowd, you run both recorders, you apologize, you condole, you speak softly, keep your voice low, keep your question simple, who was he? What happened? Where was he from? When did you see him last? How did you know he was gone? Take me to the moment, I would say. Tell me the story, and then tell me what happened next. So the methodology was important because it kept me grounded in the crime scene, and I would test it in my head every time. Right before I got into the car, after the interview, 
after the crime scene, if I could close my eyes and see the room, see the highway, see the crime scene in 360 degrees, if I knew that the blood on the ground was the consistency of tomato ketchup, if I knew that the cop had wiped away the blood on his hands on his shirt instead of a rag, if I knew that the bullet cracked through the left temple instead of the right, or that, that the piece of paper folded four times, shoved in the back pocket of the dead man that called him a drug addict was printed in Times New Roman size 12 all caps, if I knew the color of the shoe or the tenor of the scream or the fact that the killer walked away instead of ran, it meant I did the job. It meant I could go home because I would take the story home with me. Have you been able to wrap your mind around the effect of knowing the depths of those details of that daily, nightly exposure, the effect that it had on you? I could, on you? I could give you the glib answer. I could tell you that it, all, all it takes is nicotine, caffeine, and alcohol, and you're fine. <sighs> but uh, that's not true. Um, journalists aren't cameras. We don't see, save, print, then delete. We keep them. For most people, when you write, when they read the story, you know that someone is dead and it's done. For those of us who do what we do, what I do particularly, they're never dead in my head because the job is to live through the moment, but not just the moment of death. It means you take the corpse and see the person. So I don't lose a story. They stay with me. And it is my hope that I have honored the stories I told. See, I've been doing this 15 years. I, I don't traffic in hope. And I don't believe that journalism changes the world or brings justice or anything like that. I just hope that I've honored the people who, who chose to tell their stories, that I've kept a record, hopefully a good one. So that's my day-to-day, -day, just, just trying to make sure that, that, that I do justice to the stories. Duterte's calls for death would expand beyond people who are anyway, in any way associated with drugs. He would sometimes call for the deaths of journalists, human rights workers, if they were meddling mm -hmm. too much. Yet when or if a killing like that happened, Duterte would also denounce them. Can you just talk about what he was doing there? He never called for murder. He never called for extrajudicial killings. He denied murder. He denied these who were beyond the pale of the law. He said, you don't have to murder if you can kill legally. That's why we have up to 6,000 deaths in the hands of police. In every police narrative, and there are, there are variations, but the standard arc would be that the suspect, whether that's a drug dealer or a criminal or a kidnapper or an addict, the suspect would see the cop, realize that it's a cop, pull out a gun, and the cop, because he was at risk of his life, would be forced to shoot back 
or in some police reports, it would be, quote, forced to retaliate. So every one of those crime scenes will have the suspect on the ground and a gun beside him, which would demonstrate that he was previously armed. And the logic that, that um, at least for the police or for President Duterte, that made this make sense was that he would say that because they are addicts, they are hallucinatory, they are paranoid, and they are always armed. They are out of their minds. And because they are, they would choose to fire back. They would choose to fight back because they don't know any better. That's who they are. And the cops will have no reason, no, no excuse other than to shoot. Shoot to kill. Not shoot to impair. Shoot to kill. So it's a, it's a, it's a looping argument. Because they are addicts, they are armed. Because they are armed and addicts, they will shoot. Because they are armed, addicts, and will shoot, they will have to die. And cops have no choice. But even on the occasions, it seemed when the the heat was a little too much. Like, for example, I think there was the death of a, a South Korean businessman. Mm-hmm. There were moments when it was very hard to justify a police action. He would turn on them, but in a way that wouldn't isolate them, right? On some occasions, when there's international condemnation or local embarrassment, for example, that death of a South Korean businessman who was kidnapped from his home on a false by-bus operation, taken to the National Police Headquarters, where he was strangled, then later cremated, and his ashes flushed down the toilet by a panicked funeral parlor employee. That story was big. It was a foreigner. So the drug war was temporarily suspended, and then the president said that his police were corrupt to the core. So he took away the right to be part of the drug war for maybe a few months, and then we were back again. Hmm. So um, it's, uh, on one hand, he would denounce the, the brutality of, of some of the killings, say he had nothing to do with it, and then support the police. He would say they, he would give them medals for killing, that none of them would be jailed for as long as they killed in the line of duty with a presumption of regularity. So both things could exist at once. He would denounce murder and support death. We have listeners weighing in and P tweets, the parallels to the promises of Trump, who has a fondness for Duterte, are frightening. Trump did praise Duterte. This was in April of 2017. It was widely reported that he had a phone call with Duterte and said, quote, I just want to congratulate you because I'm hearing of the unbelievable job on the drug problem. Do you compare Duterte to Trump? Well, there are charismatic men all over the world who will make promises, say outrageous things, and glory in the crowds they draw. And sometimes what they say is dangerous, but not dangerous enough. They'll say, take back the border. They'll say, make the country great again. They'll say, protect the children. But the dial turns every time they say that. And then they say more dangerous things. They'll say, shoot the shoplifters, the migrants, the election workers, the judges. And in my country, 
they would say, kill the drug addicts, kill the activists, that journalists were legitimate targets of assassination. And then the terrible becomes ordinary. It can happen anywhere. It is happening everywhere. And what happened in the Philippines? It's not exotic. It's universal. It's a cautionary tale for places in the world where a politician is charismatic enough to blow a dog whistle and say some people need killing. Now, what I also wanted to say is that it's really easy to dismiss the words of a campaigning strongman and say it's just rhetoric. We can't afford to. We learned this the hard way. When strongmen promise to kill, they mean it. When they say they'll suppress the press, they mean it. When they demean women, they mean it. And when they use words to threaten, they will act on those words when they have power. We're talking with Patricia Bandelista, a journalist and author of the new book, Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country. It was also one of the New York Times' 10 best books of 2023. Let me go to caller Dan in Sacramento. Dan, you're on. Thank you. I appreciate your book. My wife and I bought it, and uh, she's reading it right now. I just wanted to relate what you were saying about uh, former President Trump. Uh, my wife and her siblings are all uh, baby boomer aged um, Filipinos. My wife's Filipina, obviously. And um, what he, the former President Duarte has done to her family and her relationships with friends is the same that we've heard with so many families being torn apart by the, you know, the rhetoric of uh, president Trump. And then just one other interesting side note, uh, one brother of my wife, my brother-in-law that agreed with her, he was an NBI agent, which is the national bureau of investigation, which is the Filipino equivalent of our, FBI, and he left the service. Um, yeah, he was kind of nearing retirement. He left the service because of, you know, the uh, the killing. So it's it's a shame, and I agree with everything the author is saying about uh, it can happen any place. So thank you, Dan. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Dan. It's making me think about how you also profiled not just victims but Duterte supporters. Because Daniel writes here, all these people are human beings, convinced they're doing the right thing. Do you think such vigilante-style killings could happen anywhere? Can you talk about two of the people who you profiled who supported Duterte? One of them is Don Don Chan. Why did Don Don support Duterte? Don Don is a dentist. He is well-educated, well-traveled, largely liberal, Catholic, although uh, not uh, not particularly conservative, and um, he voted for Duterte because he liked that he was different. It's not that Don Don wanted Duterte to kill; it was just that he was different. He was different from the former oligarchy, and he was different from everyone else. So he voted for Duterte and told people to vote for Duterte because we just needed someone different. Um, it's the same for quite a lot of people. It's just a change. Yeah. And Jason Kizon? Jason. Jason, I like Jason. We got along. Uh, Jason is, is a 
um, very progressive, uh, believes in in the right to abortion, believes in the woman's choice, believes uh, believes that uh, drug use is a disease and that it doesn't come with a death sentence. He is an engineer. He works in the Middle East. He has a wife and children and uh, is a Star Trek fan, as am I. And um, he voted for Duterte because he said Duterte was strong. At that time, overseas Filipino workers were being victimized when they came home by uh, by airport workers who would stick bullets in their luggage and then they would have to pay a bribe to get out of it. So it was a small thing for many people, but for him it mattered. And Duterte took a stand and he said, no, this is a terrible thing and someone must do something. Now, Jason is largely liberal. He liked the stand that Duterte took. He heard Duterte say that he would kill people. He heard Duterte say that, um, I wish I could rape this really pretty foreign missionary. Mm. He heard all of that, but he didn't believe it. He said he, was, he thought it was just playing with the media, trying to get in the headlines, that uh, Duterte knew how to play with people. So he voted for him. I, I'd like to, to emphasize these people have decided in the aftermath that they made the wrong decision. Huh. The, the act of them telling me their story, it's their act of contrition. Huh. And, and what did it? it? We were coming up on a break, but, but what did it? What made them feel that they had made a mistake? Many reasons. Uh, some of the women who voted for Duterte, they said that uh, when a 17-year-old child, young man, was shot on camera, or at least partially on camera, that young man, witnesses said that when the cops raised the gun, he begged, he begged to live. He said, you can't kill me because I have an exam tomorrow. And, and, um, and the woman saw it, and Jason saw it, and a number of people saw it. And one of the mothers I spoke to, she said it felt like, it felt like she had shot the boy herself, huh. that she had empowered the people. And um, all her life, she would make up for what she did. We're talking with Patricia Evangelista. Her book is Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country about the Philippines. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
We're talking with Patricia Evangelista, a journalist who covered the many, many killings of people, suspected drug dealers, drug users, and others that uh, then-President of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, often called collateral damage. She covered this for Rappler and has documented her experiences in a new book called Some People Need Killing. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation, sharing with us your reactions to what you're hearing, any parallels or experiences that you're hearing, any connections you or your family has to the Duterte presidency. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, Instagram, our digital community on Discord, Twitter, or X. Our phone number is 866-733-6786. And let me go to Abel in San Francisco. Abel, you're on. Uh, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, first, I want to congratulate and thank um, Patricia Evangelista uh, um, for what she does. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't think of a more eloquent and more uh, powerful uh, voice for those who are getting, you know, murdered or that got murdered in the past. And uh, um, and also, I, I want to speak, I, I want to tell a little bit of my tale. I'm, my name is Abel, and I'm a, I'm a recovering uh, meth head that lives here in San Francisco. And I can see many parallels in the way that that um, people that use drugs uh, or have a substance abuse problem um, are treated by the system here in San Francisco. And, and, and the way that even though the city of San Francisco has a policy of harm reduction, in, I'd say in name only, because in reality, the people that are, that are directly, a lot of the people that are directly in front of this uh, or in charge of this, enforcing this policy or, or, or leaving up this policy, uh, are people that have strong prejudice about uh, drug use or people that are or unprepared or uh, untrained to deal with uh, uh, drug disorders. That well, um, said, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, no, I, I just really appreciate you sharing your story and also the very real and felt reflection of how still um, people mm-hmm. who use drugs, people who are in any way associated with it are are dehumanized. And what is so powerful about your book is how this corrupted view of the value of a human life, regardless, can become so normalized. So Abel, I really appreciate you bringing that to the floor. Thank you, Abel. I, I, I also want to tell you, please take care of yourself. Remember, Duterte's daughter is the vice president of the Philippines. Yes. And, and these people don't take kindly to people that speak out the truth, mostly somebody that is as eloquent and as powerful as you are. So please, please take care of yourself. Thank you. Thanks, Abel. I'll watch my back. Abel, thank you. And I'm so appreciative of him for also bringing that up. So tell us where things are now, because we know, right? We know that his daughter is the vice president. He left power in 2022 because of term limits, Duterte left, not because he lost an election. It's the Philippine Constitution that prohibits him from seeking a -hmm. second term. So his daughter is vice president. Who is leading the government now? Who is president? The president of the Philippines is Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos, um, Rodrigo Duterte's daughter, the vice president. Um, 
is 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 um, is in power right now. So uh, if you want to go narrative on it, it's the dictator's son and the punisher's daughter leading huh. leading the Philippines. And the dictator's son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., he has refused to cooperate with the International Criminal Court as they are investigating Duterte's drug war, as he's called it. What do you make of that? What do you feel Duterte, or do you feel Duterte is still very much pulling the strings? When Rodrigo Duterte was in power, he obviously refused to allow the International Criminal Court to investigate uh, the drug war in the Philippines. It, it uh, requires an invitation from the government at least to go in. And uh, he withdrew the Philippines from the International Criminal Court itself. So uh, upon the election of Ferdinand Marcos, it was clear that they would not, they would follow the, the same policy as the Duterte government. However, the, the tide is turning a little bit. I cannot speak more than that uh, because I haven't been on the ground for the last six months. But it seems there is a possibility that the Marcos government might permit cooperation with the ICC. Hmm. Interesting. Um, the headlines, I think it was just yesterday, were saying that he said he would not lift a finger <laughs> uh, with regard to their investigation to help any investigation that the ICC conducts. But uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. The other thing to keep an eye on is we've also seen headlines saying that Duterte is hinting at a return to politics. Mm -hmm. What does that mean exactly? What, what does he mean? Well, he's been hinting at it a while. Um, uh, your guess is as good as mine. He might run for office. I don't think he will. The Duterte family is already a dynasty, as is the Marcos family. So uh, the, patriarch, the patriarchs don't have to stand up anymore. Their children are running the country. You talk about the killing of the 17-year-old that seemed to break through at least mm -hmm. to Don Don and Jason was there another moment that did that? Do you think if Duterte does return to politics, he will have the same or a similar reception? Or do you think something has happened in these last four years, or something has happened over the last four years of this drug war, quote unquote drug war, which has only had maybe a breath from his departure mm -hmm. for a short time? Do you think something has happened that makes it so that this cannot be repeated, that it's over? I don't think anyone can ever say never again. It's still happening. Uh, since the count under Ferdinand Marcos Jr. of drug-related deaths is something around a little more than 400, and that was just November last year. I don't know the current numbers right now. Um, so it's not like it stopped. There are instances, though, when... Uh, when the stories become stark, when it's not just numbers, when it's not just corpses on the street, because people get used to it. Um, sometime in late 2020, uh, during the, the COVID pandemic, there was a video that went viral. It was of a mother and uh, her son being shot by a cop. And it wasn't even because of drug use, it wasn't criminality. 
it was because it was almost Christmas and the young man was firing fireworks, um, uh, homemade fireworks in their back lawn. And there was some bad blood between the two families and, and then he killed them, mother and son, point blank, on video. So it was a story that went very much viral and there was no escape for people. They couldn't claim that the young man fought back. Nobody could have an argument that the boy deserved it. So it, this is one of the stories that made it real for many people. This listener writes on Instagram, I can't wait to read this. A cousin of mine was down the wrong path and could very well have been executed in the street. This is Matthew on Instagram. Another Matthew, a different Matthew, writes, I'm wondering about the response of civil society to the Duterte salvage campaign. Did academics and public health groups push back on the othering of addicts and users? What about grassroots groups? Did they exist and try to protect people? To all those questions, I would say yes, yes, and absolutely yes. It wasn't that there was no resistance. It wasn't that I was alone on the field under no circumstances. The media stood up. The church stood up. Uh, they took care of the aftermath of, of, uh, of the killings because families would be terrified. And those of us who reported couldn't protect the people after they spoke to us. We couldn't pay for the coffins. We couldn't pay for the funerals. So it was a church. It was civil society. There was grassroots resistance from day one. So it wasn't strong enough then. Maybe someday it'll be strong enough. This listener writes on Instagram, so much admiration for Mizan. Evangelista, for bravely telling the story. Now that Duterte is out of office, what remains? Is the Philippines better for the killings? What a waste. It's sort of one of those ends justify the means question. It's not that the means should ever be condoned, but, I mean, did it even do anything? Well, when he was campaigning for the presidency, he promised he would end the drug scourge in three to six months. At the end of the six months, he said he needed another year. And then across his presidency, he said that the problem was so terrible that he would be campaigning till the end of his term against illegal drugs. Mm. And then when he stepped down, he said he didn't know how terrible it was, that we were almost a narco state, all of that. So no, he did not solve illegal drugs in the Philippines. Abel said something that makes me wonder about what kind of danger you were in when you left the Philippines and whether you plan to return. I am in the United States because my publisher is Random House New York. I am also here in an excess of caution because I have named police officers and I have interviewed vigilantes. Um, but I am a Filipino field reporter. My field is there. So I'm going home. I'm going home soon. And um, it, it, I'm also aware that I wrote in English a book that is expensive for my country. So it is very likely that the only contact people will have with some of the stories I told will be through me speaking. And that's part of the job. 
We're talking with journalist Patricia Evangelista about the killings that took place in the Philippines under former President Rodrigo Duterte. According to human rights organizations, it has claimed more than 30,000 lives. Duterte's term ended in 2022. Evangelista's book is Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to James in San Ramon. James, you're on. Hi, uh, yes. Um, my my wife is a Filipina, and her little brother was 16 or 17, and he got addicted to meth. Meth is, is really popular in where mm-hmm. they live. And um, he got put on a list, and then he got a warning, and and then he stopped. Um, but it was it was very stressful for the time. The mom was like, kind of, uh, she kind of brushed it off because a lot of support they still like Duterte even though her son was on the list he was kind of still like well that's his decision to be addicted to drugs or whatnot and all that stuff and then another thing is that um where and how are the drugs the meth coming into the country Hmm. um there's from from what I understand, we're from this, from like Mindanao, uh, our family, and it's a lot of the terrorists that are selling and bringing in the drugs. James, thank you. Uh, that is a good question. Where do they come from, Patricia? Um, in the Philippines, occasionally the drugs are made in the country. Occasionally they're shipped from elsewhere. Um, yes, some of it go through Mindanao. Um, I'm not sure if I understood what, what James just said. Did he say terrorists? Yeah. I, that is, a that is a justification often when, um, when, when the president says he, or when, when there's military action, uh-huh. um, Occasionally, it is said, instead of whatever concerns are available, it will be blamed on illegal drugs. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Um, as to being put on lists of drug dealers being put on lists or drug addicts being put on lists, those lists are dangerous things. Sometimes there are drop boxes that the name can be anonymously dropped, and then you're on the list, and then you have to be afraid. And I understand this point that um, in as much as families are afraid when their sons, husbands, brothers, cousins are on those lists, it also happens that while they are related, sometimes the addicts, the sons, the brothers, the cousins are blamed for their choice to use drugs as if they deserve to be on that list. There are bodies we have found uh, of suspects who still have the support Duterte bracelets on their hands, in uh, wrapped around their wrists. They believe in Rodrigo Duterte, even knowing that Rodrigo Duterte promised them death. You started by telling us Love Love's story. How How is Love Love? You say she turned 18 just before this book went to press. Yes. Um, when I spoke to Love Love, she was 11. It was in the immediate aftermath of her parents' deaths. And uh, when I first, when I was writing the drafts, the first few drafts of the book, I knew 
I knew Love Love needed to be in the book, but I also knew she was 11 years old when I spoke to her. And I needed her consent again. So it was, uh, I wasn't certain if I would get it. And under 18, you need a guardian to say yes. So um, just before we published, Love Love turned 18. And then I asked her if she wanted to tell her story. And, and she said yes. It was important. And she thanked you. You... She thanked me, yes. Uh, you know, you you can have the New York Times tell you it's a good book. But when Love Love said it, it mattered so very much. Because they're the ones who are taking the risk. Not me sitting in a studio in New York. It's the people who told the story, who said this is important. Yes. Do you... Does that help you believe in the power of journalism if you ever felt yourself losing faith in that power? <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't know if I believe in the power of journalism. I've, I've been doing this a long time. And in the beginning, I thought when terrible things happened, it was because people didn't know about it. So you write about it. Yes. And then it stops. Um, I have seen more dead bodies than is reasonable in the last, last 15 years. And I have written about it. Not just me, many people have written about terrible things. And if I still believed that what I did would change things immediately tomorrow, next week, I would stop working. Because you can't hope and break your heart every time. So I live with negotiated expectations. I don't assume justice. I don't offer hope. I just want to keep a record for when it matters. I hope it's a good one. I hope it's a compelling one. And I do hope people like Love Love, whose stories I told, will look at it and say that I have done it justice. That's all I try. Patricia, thank you. Patricia Evangelista's book is Some People Need Killing, a Memoir of Murder in My Country. Thank you, listeners, for your questions and comments and experiences. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.